This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 53. Recently, I was on the Gold Coast and you drive down the M1 there and there's two substantial storage facilities side by side. And, you know, to a newcomer to the industry, you'd look at it and say, gee, two brand new facilities opening within months of each other in an area where there's nothing special. It's densely populated, but it looks like a number of suburbs around Australia. And both of those stores led up side by side a mind-altering type of net growth every single month. And what we're seeing now is our industries at warp speed in regards to a well-built, well-placed, well-measured and presented store has got every opportunity of being able to be not only of a large size, but to fill up relatively quickly. Hey, commercial property community, how are you doing today? So good to be back. My name is Andrew Bean. I am the host of the Commercial Property Show, and we have an absolutely ripper episode for you again today, like we always do, and here it is. Jason Keane from Storage Security Group joins me on this episode of the Commercial Property Show. He is a 20-year self-storage industry expert, and we go through his journey through self-storage. It's an absolutely amazing effort. He talks about how he was the business operations manager for Storage King for six years, their entire portfolio, how he used to work in the shopping center industry and moved into the self-storage industry back in the day when you know self-storage wasn't what it is today. We talk about how the Australian self-storage industry is different to the American self-storage industry and how many years behind it is. We talk about how the self-storage industry fared through the GFC in 2008. We talk about what the big REITs are looking for, the big boys, and a lot more. So this is a great interview. Check it out. But first... Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. You can find our private group on Facebook by searching Commercial Property Community or you can click on the link in the show notes. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. My next guest is a self-storage industry expert and CEO of Storage Security Group. It's Jason Keane. How are you, mate? I'm very good, Andrew. Thank you for the invitation. I'm excited about today's chat. You are very welcome. 
So, mate, for the listeners who don't know you, can you just share a little bit about your background in the self-storage industry and prior to that? I studied commerce, so I've got an accounting background. Started off in shopping centre and market background, so retail background, and then egressed into self-storage in the year 2000, the same year that GST was introduced. Started off as operations manager for a brand called Storage King, was with Storage King for approximately 11 years, was then picked up by a boutique storage operator in Melbourne, and then morphed into what I'm doing today, which is I'm the CEO, as you introduced me, of the company called Storage Security, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, and also do some consultancy work to the industry as a whole with some valuers and giving some advice to operators that are new to the industry. Yeah, awesome, mate. So, I mean, I've been uh, doing a lot of research into the industry in the last 12 to 18 months, and every single person I talk to, when the subject of security comes up, they say, you've got to talk to Jason. You've got to talk to Jason Keane from Sentinel. How did that come about? You're just the man for uh, security these days. We've been blessed. Whilst I was working for a company called Fry's Storage in Melbourne, who had recently been bought out by National Storage. I was there working under contract, then owner of the distribution rights for a brand name called Sentinel, was aiming at egressing out of the industry. He thought that he had a decent business that would be of interest to somebody to purchase from him after owning it himself for a number of years. I suggested to him to give me a look at the books to see whether it was something of interest to us, which it was. And 12 months after, we'd basically taken control of that business. So we've got the Southern Hemisphere distribution rights for a company called Sentinel. That morphed that business. What we were doing is focusing on access control, unit alarming, lighting control and elevator control with a product which was really one of two in the market in this region anyway that interface back with the managerial software that was being offered. So brands like Storman and Sitelink, to name two, interfaced with basically the Sentinel product. So if you did a move-in on your managerial software, all that information would be relayed to ours. And we've had that business for almost 10 years, and it's trading well. My day-to-day involvement with that business has changed a little bit because it's grown, thank goodness. And two years ago, we were given an opportunity to essentially take over the distribution rights for a company called PTI, which is the competitor to Sentinel. So we had to set up two separate entities and convince the marketplace there wasn't any collusion. And we still had the ability of being able to have both of those businesses run independently so that uh, there wasn't an opportunity for a third operator to come along. Perfect. So it sounds like you got the monopoly. Well, yeah. I mean, it's been an interesting concept because the ultimately both of the products do a similar thing at the end of the day for the end user. But the Sentinel business changed. Uh, when we took it over 10 years ago, I had a lot of relationships with a lot of the self-storage builders and they requested that we didn't just specialise in everything that was Sentinel access control, et cetera, but you take on everything that was security. So that actual business looks after everything which is security. So you 
contact us and our sales manager basically sees the project all of the way through to the end, which means that we engage the installer group, we do the commissioning, et cetera, et cetera. The other business, which is PTI, it came with all of its own installers who essentially are the retailers. So they would basically buy wholesale from the distributor, which is now me, and then they have the relationship with the end user and then deliver it. So it's a different relationship, one-stop shop business. And the other one for us anyway is more of a supply business. We do the software support for both brands. Now, again, from a user's perspective, it's the same outcome. They ring centralized independent numbers. And if there's something wrong or customization that needs to be done, we handle that. But again, the makeups of those businesses are very, very different. I've got less influence over the PTI product, for example, that I would have with the Sentinel product if, in fact, I was looking after that on a day-to-day basis. And as I alluded to before, because of the growth that we've experienced within our companies as a whole, you can no longer do that by yourself. You've got to rely upon capable people to help you do that, you know, in the form of employees. Yeah, fair enough. So, mate, just going back to the start of your career, you mentioned you were in the shopping center industry. Can you just explain, like, what the shopping center industry is and what your actual role was? After my schooling, I started working for a company which was called Grey and Winter. They predominantly were uh, taxation barristers and solicitors with a big client base of people that were looking for investment opportunity. So they created a management business that actually saw them go and purchase shopping centres and a couple of weekend markets, some high calibre weekend markets. To give you an indication, one of those markets was called the Pipeworks. It was located in Melbourne and it had 500 storeholders every week, basically trade on a Saturday and Sunday and Monday public holiday almost like a bit of a unpolished shopping centre type of setup. So it had food courts and all of the traders had an individual space, but it was hardly glamorous. But nevertheless, it was an interesting business because there was a lot of different cultures and personality types that run market stores. And if I look back on my career as a whole, I think it was one of the biggest learning curves that I've had. They also had more A and B grade shopping centres scattered around Melbourne metropolitan areas um, and fringe areas up on the border of Victoria and New South Wales in Albury, Wodonga and over in Adelaide. They also had some exposures to some uh, truck stops as well. So it's a pretty diverse role. My role specifically was I was being trained as a senior operations manager or trained to be a senior operations manager and the gentleman who was training me fell ill. I was kind of told on a Monday morning that I was the bloke. So, you know, at an age of around about 26, I, I took on a senior role within this particular business. It was great. It was a good learning curve. The portfolio as a whole was actually taken out by a substantial superannuation fund. Started negotiating that in 1999 and that concluded around about 2000. And that was really my opportunity to get involved with self storage at that point of time. Yeah, wow. I mean, so what did the self storage industry look like in the 2000s? 
<laughs> well, it was early 2000, as I've made mention. To be honest, I remember my first day where I was started working as a store manager in preparation for my operations role. And uh, you spent a lot of time answering the telephone, educating people about the products. Mm. So if you fast forward to today, you know, because of sitcoms and you know, mostly American sitcoms and the storage wars, self storage and storage wars, yeah, and, and um, <laughs> the presence of self storage throughout Australia, you know, whether it be ranch style or you're now seeing, you know, the equity funds build, you know, in the, the monsters that they're churning out at the moment. People back then just didn't know what the product was. So they were ringing saying, I think I need you, but I'm not sure. You know, before we have to talk about price, before we have to talk about anything, tell me whether I actually need you or not. Majority of people that were storing in a storage facility in the early 2000s were actually trying to align settlement dates. They'd sold a house and they weren't able to move into a new house that they'd recently purchased or they were egressing from living at home with mum and dad and they were moving into their first home and it was a a haven, I suppose, for them to be able to place their goods whilst they were waiting. And that's just not the case anymore. Back then, like, when did you start seeing traction in the self-storage industry? Like, how many years did it take? Because, I mean, that wasn't really long ago, like 22 years. It's not crazy amount of time. Yeah, I think the best way to answer that question is is that the traction was always there. It was instantaneous. I mean, it wasn't uncommon for a 500-unit storage facility to basically start trading and fill within kind of four or five years. That was pretty common. There was less storage facilities that were out there. So the ones that were there and positioned well and arguably in growth corridors they traded extremely well, but what we see today is with more awareness out there is multiple storage facilities being able to trade equally as well. Recently, I was on the Gold Coast and you drive down the M1 there and there's two substantial storage facilities side by side. And, you know, to a newcomer to the industry, you'd look at it and say, gee, two brand new facilities opening within months of each other in an area where there's nothing special. It's densely populated, but it looks like a number of suburbs around Australia. And both of those stores led up side by side, a mine-altering type of net growth every single month. And what we're seeing now is our industries at warp speed in regards to a well-built, well-placed, well-measured and presented store has got every opportunity of being able to be not only of a large size, but to fill up relatively quickly. And I think the key to self-storage these days, by my reckoning anyway, is is that you still need to be well-measured and go in to build a storage facility whilst being very well-informed. Mm. Once you better understand what the matrix is around that, and you can get it filled. The minute that you get it filled, then you want to create vacancy by basically driving yield. So the next person that presents themselves in the office or presents themselves online, they're prepared to pay a little bit more. They should be given every opportunity of being able to do that. And that's where you see the actual return per square meter appreciation more so today because we're a little bit more educated than what we would have seen previously. So 
Yeah, there's a number of operators that will be talking to us about a security stage two fit out or just be ringing for a general chin wag and they benchmark their success on, oh, gee, I've been full for the better part of 12 months or two years. And I usually respond to that by saying that your product's too cheap. So you really want to be driving that return per square metre always until you find that market equilibrium. And when you do ensure if you can achieve full occupancy, then good on you. But I'd say that there's a little bit of complacency that creeps in for operators that are sitting at 100% prolonged period of time because it's unhealthy and quite frankly that's just not how you run business these days yeah well that's right i mean you find that with the mum and dad operators they only care about being full they don't actually care about driving rates like you said but you actually if you're doing it properly like a professional business i mean there's a bit to be said about the industry evolving looking at it over the space of the last 22 years but Podcasts such as this, our teachings that we've learned from, for example, the likes of America, who have had a long and established self-storage industry, in addition to the information that is now available to us through, for example, looking at some publicly listed companies, which actually do have a solid self-storage base, it will tell you that basically you've got to keep on moving forward. And there's a lot more education that's out there than what was beforehand, we kind of self-taught ourselves a lot of things going back 20 years ago, where there's a lot more precedent that's set today. And some of those, as you say, the mum and dad operators that are out there that are benchmarking their success differently, perhaps if they're aware of what they were able to achieve, they'd be in a better position today. Remembering that a lot of those operators might be in regional centres and, you know, they feel pretty close to the community and maybe they're too a little bit too close to the business where they can't walk down the street, having put through some rental increases through together or in waves and then run into John and Barbara, their friends down the street and have them frown upon it. So there's a bit to be said about introducing a management company or a third party kind of manager to drive your business if, uh, for example, you're that way inclined. Yeah, mate. So just finishing that thought bubble is the type of owner or operator, like a mum and dad operator, they actually pride themselves, like you said, on being full and they don't actually like drive rates, like you said. But if Mm. you're doing it like a professional business, like your national storage, your storage kings, like any kind of real proper business... They actually want to push vacancy. They actually want that vacancy. They're driving the rates up to actually try and get people to move out so they can bring a higher priced person into that self-storage facility. What's your um, idea on seasonality of self-storage? I know that springtime is usually a very popular time in self-storage. Yeah, you're right. When I first started in the industry, we used to have this thing that we call the bowl effect. If you have a look at a... uh, a ruler and you start at January and you work your way through to June, well, January would basically be the top of the bowl and June would be the bottom of the bowl and then it would return to December if you can kind of picture that analogy or that diagram. Now, that used to be reflective of the inquiries that we used to enjoy. So if you had, for example, a store and I'll just pick a number and you say that It used to do 50 inquiries, for example, in January. But by the time that it would get down into the depths of winter, if you lived in the southern states in particular, that number, for example, might be 30, where previously you've enjoyed 50. 
So you used to budget with that. But what happened is as the industry become more mature, we started moving from the year 2000 into 2010. That bowl was looking a little bit more like a saucer. And we Mm. had a lot of that, the seasons come out of that. Our beeline modelling that you would try to avoid at all costs was something that we were able to adopt again with a little bit of clarity. So, but there is no doubt whatsoever in our eyes anyway that the industry itself has become a lot more resilient and a lot more practical. So, again, there's seasonal aspects that you need to take into consideration. For example, if you live north, you've got the wet season. If you live south, you're in the depths of winter and That's where I call home in Melbourne most times, although we have been blessed with recent good weather. (laughs) But yeah, I I can say that season factor from 20 years ago was quite apparent, but these days it's less so. We've got COVID, which have been hard years to predict. We can talk about why this industry is so good, having lived through two, two and a half years of that in a minute. But Yeah, that seasonality is no longer a factor as significant as what it was previously. From looking at it from my perspective, I mean, like seasonality-wise, in spring, there's usually more properties to list, right? There's usually more getting sold, getting rented. Mm. So obviously in self-storage, movement is money. So when people are moving around, more so in spring, because there's more properties and things available like that, then Mm. surely there has to be a flow-on effect And it might be more in locations that are colder because people don't want to obviously do that when it's cold. They prefer to do that in the summer. So it might be like a lot more of a colder climate that that's really affected in. I wouldn't disagree to it necessarily. The thing is, is that we've just seen that, for example, and no doubt the property market, residential property market is a big factor, but we tend to see that being offset a little bit with the commercial use. So the answer mm. to your question is is that a normal non-COVID year and in, let's say, a state such as Victoria or Melbourne specifically, you know, that that would, in my opinion, be a little bit more influential elsewhere. And remembering a majority of the operators that we've been dealing with more so for the last three years, just to put a bit of a snapshot on it, they've been relatively full. So mm. we've got some storage operators out there that have got storage facilities that are 1,500 units in size, and they've been trading at 93, 94% occupancy for the last three years comfortably in no doubt what we now see as being very much a mature market. They haven't necessarily put their foot on the accelerator with any rental increases during COVID because it was a little bit of an unknown, but more recently when they've started to accelerate and push some rental increases through and trying to create that vacancy that we've spoken about because the demand has certainly been there, they've had very little resistance. You know, it's hard. The last three years, we were trading obviously into COVID and then through COVID itself, we've come out on the other side of COVID. Well, our fingers are crossed that we've come out on the other side of COVID. And what we've seen our industry do is be very, very resilient all of the way through. And there's factors around that. We think that we've still got, you know, people working from home. Me, myself, on a Monday and a Friday feel that it's a little bit easier to get around all of the capital cities that I 
frequent around Australia and New Zealand at the moment. I think people are moving or working from home starting in the week and, and on the back end of the week, we're starting to see that. Though some people may have had to take over the spare room or the junk room or their garage, for example, in order for them to be able to work from home, whether it be full-time or part-time, and all of that clutter, those assets that people don't want to get rid of, they're going into self-storage, which has been a really good primary driver of that. We've seen a lot of business operators who have had to make a decision during COVID whether they're going to renew leases upsize or downsize so they've used self-storages for the purpose of self-storage facilities for the purposes of making that decision a little bit easier mm. where if a business is growing they're unsure whether that's a byproduct for example of COVID rather than committing themselves to a larger size factory they're able to engage upon a month-by-month lease you know with a let's say a 14-day notice period in self-storage and although per square meter, they'd be paying more for that. They get a lot of flexibility that comes back. There's been a number of people, for example, that have continued to basically purchase assets for holiday houses and their own house, and they've been redecorating. And there's been obviously a really big push for people to do their own home improvements during, for example, COVID. And then There's another spin-off of why people have stored in self-storage, why these renovations are taking place. So what we've seen is I suppose that traditional self-storage user shift a little bit. But again, we've been fortunate to be in this industry because we've been able to cater for those types of things as well. And that's been really, really exciting. I remember 2008 GFC towards the latter part of the year and the self-storage industry was waiting for that ripple that would inevitably drive our occupancy levels down and drive our, for example, our yields down. And it certainly did come. We saw it in Brisbane and Sydney between late 2009 to, let's say, the early part of 2011. And we started to see that filter through to the likes of Victoria in midway through 2011. But not to an extent that other businesses were affected. Occupancy may have fell back a couple of percentage points on, for example, a mature facility and yield may have frozen. It might have retracted slightly, but it was really, again, just proving how resilient this industry is when compared to other places, you know, it or other industries, I should say. COVID's another one for all of the lockdowns and people looking at self-storage, the opportunity of them getting out to find another home, for example, having already sold their place, that opportunity just wasn't there with COVID. So the perception out there from the operators and the feedback that they gave us is is that the average stay increased as a result of COVID because people just didn't come in and store for four, five, six months, they were there for a prolonged period, which was great for, again, just enjoying that stability. And let's face it, we had people around us with restaurants not being able to trade. And I live in Victoria, so you could argue that that was a different type of state altogether. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you talk about the GFC because, I mean, back then, obviously, there was worldwide ramifications for that incident or what was happening there. But people are more likely to default on a large mortgage repayment 
rather than just a hundred dollars per month storage bill. It's quite interesting that you said because it's it is widely known that self storage is quite recession resistant, and we have seen that through COVID, haven't we? I mean, resilience is what we've been blessed with in this industry. From an operator's perspective, it's a pretty good arrangement that we've got with our customer base. You know, if they don't pay for a period of 42 days, we get an opportunity after we tick a few boxes to take possession of those goods and auction them through a couple of different means which are available to us. So when you talk about liabilities in a business and you have a look at what our potential liabilities are. For a well-managed storage facility, the exposure level is less than a lot of other industries that are out there. And that's why I think the valuers like our industry, and I think this is why the equity funds as a whole like our industry. And as you're well aware, there's a lot more equity money floating around at the moment. And they look at self-storage as being a very good opportunity. And we're seeing some changes in our marketplace where we went from a unsophisticated market, in my opinion, kind of 2000, moving into a lot of brand presence. And, you know, let's say 2010, we then started to see a lot of consolidation where people, for example, who are an independent operator, you know, have seen some value and safe haven in being part of a brand such as the likes of Storage King. And then we've seen our first uh, REIT be listed, which is basically National Self Storage, which trades on the ASX. Mm. And more recently, we've started to see glorified partnerships and companies all of a sudden pop up and they might use another brand to brand and manage the stores. But Collectively, they turn around and say, oh, you know, our group has basically got 14 stores or 20 stores trading under another franchise brand name. And then you've got the likes of the U.S. funds starting to uh, poke their head into the marketplace and buy portfolios over in Perth last year and in Melbourne earlier this year. So it's very exciting as to what's happening, but it certainly has moved from being a kind of a family-ran industry managed by the local real estate agent into more professional management company environment. Now what we're starting to see is most certainly the big end of town show interest in what 20 years ago was a small little industry in Australia. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, when uh, groups like uh, Blackstone start buying up whole portfolios in Australia, you know that they've got a big team of strategists behind that and they know what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously in what we do, we're exposed to a variety of different brands that are out there and they're all seeking innovation and they're pushing the limits of customer service and automation as a whole. And that's really, really exciting. Their role is to add value. So a cast of thousands are all focused on this particular asset class will be a good thing, in my opinion. And there's a lot of operators that are out there at the moment who are sitting on assets where previously they may have had two or three people expressing interest in their business. And now they might have four or five different groups out there expressing interest in their business. So We've got a number of people in our industry at the moment who 
Now, they've been at it for maybe 10, 15 years and they've put their kids through university because of the proceeds of the business and given them a bit of a kickstart and they were kind of hoping that they'd be able to pass the business on to their next generation and for whatever reason, it, some of those next generation aren't interested in running a self-storage facility and um, but now the exit strategy in place for a lot of these operators enables them to be able to go to the market and then list the property with a substantial commercial agent, in some cases four or five different brands or equity funds and property trusts wanting to have a crack at it, which is a really good outcome. So in the metropolitan centres, we're seeing more consolidation and a number of the CEOs that are out there have basically been suggesting that that would be the case for many years and that's that's what we can see at the moment. You've got the likes of Storage King who are underpinned by an equity fund called Abacus and they've got a, a group of franchisees and they've got a property trust trading within that brand. I hope I've explained that well mm. enough. You've got the likes of National Self Storage that are out there now and don't quote me on the numbers, but each of those brands have got 200 facilities. So there's 400 there and probably well aware of Kennard self-storage and yep. you mentioned Blackstone before and there's a number of other brands out there that between the band of 10 stores to let's say 50 stores and so we're starting to see a lot more consolidation and what's exciting for me because I really like the rural centres of New South Wales, well everywhere to be fair, we're starting to see some interest in those areas but I've got to say that the most satisfying thing for me is really seeing those people that are just out there having a genuine crack and they're starting with one store and they're learning the ropes and you know they're genuinely interested in what is the best way for them to operate that store and as I was alluding to before there's a lot more resources available today for them and the self-storage associations resources as well and the literature that's available and it, it gives everybody a bit of a fighting chance in regards to uh, you know getting it almost right the first time. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, I'm one of those people who is hopefully putting the first store under contract this week and hopefully going to be building up a, a nice, sizable portfolio of self-storage facilities in future. So you're speaking my language. <laughs> I think, um, in my opinion, and listen, I'm biased because the industry has been great to me and, and my family. And the only reason that I'm not an operator is is because I sell to the industry and don't want to be perceived as being a threat to anybody in respect to what is, at the end of the day, a very geographical driven business. There's not too many industries that, in my opinion, continue to be friendly. And in my opinion, have people that are willing to offer advice and ultimately, the industry itself is a happy industry, but more so it's driven by the fact that the majority of people that are out there and operating are successful, right? Some of them are more successful than others. Some of them don't realize how successful they are. But it's a really good real estate-driven industry that can basically see an environment of being cash flow positive in relative terms compared to other businesses fairly quickly. And I think that that's important. And as I said, as a industry as a whole, the big key to it is, is basically getting in there and creating a good product 
up to what you can afford day one and then continue basically investing into the industry or into the facility itself in order to make it as easy for you and to offer a great customer experience. And as a whole, we get that pretty right as an industry. What we do every day and what we do for our customers is pretty enjoyable at the end of the day. And we share their operational experiences and often go in there to adapt what we do from a security perspective to correct any wrongs that are out there. But overall, we're in a pretty safe environment and we think moving forward that should continue. And so, mate, as your uh, role as the operations manager for Storage King, what did a normal day look like for you? Were you like a, you were Australia-wide operations manager, weren't you? So my role's changed. And I suppose anybody who's within an organization for 11 years, it's bound to, for two reasons, you strive to do something different and add more value. I was blessed. The founders of Storage King gave me every opportunity of being able to do some different things in the business. So um, I went and cut my teeth as a store manager in a storage facility, which was called Storage King Scoresby, which was basically built in a growth corridor of Melbourne. And um, there was a lot that I learned there for the six months that I worked there on a full-time basis. And Subsequently, I'd pop back into the store from time to time just to rehone my skill set, I suppose. We originally created a management business. So the way that Storage King was when I first started, which was a good model, was everyone joined the group to be part of a master brand and be part of a buying group and a centralized marketing group. So I was involved with that, but more so when a decision was made to create a management company that essentially saw Storage King allow for an owner of a Storage King site to be passive and they paid Storage King or royalty to oversee the management of that store. My job was to essentially make sure that our operation protocols and procedures and the revenue and the containment of expenditure was better than if a owner of the store was running it themselves, essentially. And that business basically evolved over time. We started with three stores and then that grew to 80 stores fairly quickly. Wow. That was enhanced by the introduction of a property trust, which was called Abacus. I worked in that operations role, overseeing pretty much Australia in that capacity up until 2005. In 2005 and six, I went over to the UK and basically mirrored what we had done in Australia, but in the UK. And that was great. Macquarie Bank was the equity funds that were over there acting as the property trust, for want of better words, but there was a number of individual franchisees that were also joining the brand. And, you know, I've got some fond memories of what was achieved over there. Inside the space of two years, we saw the portfolio grow from two stores to almost 40 stores, which was great. And for those of you who visited the UK, it looks pretty small on a map, but it's pretty difficult to get around. And so my role over there was business development, operations, a bit of financial staff training usually comes with operations. So I wore a lot of different hats. In fact, I, I relocated 
my then fiance, my now wife over there. So she was across there with me as well, which is great. But some long days, but very rewarding. I then returned back to Australia 2006 and I couldn't go back into a national role, more so because the brand acceleration that we were experiencing in Australia and New Zealand was just operating at warp speed. So we divvied the country up into basically regional managers. So my slither, for want of better words, was Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia and the ACT. And I was also the national training manager there for a couple of years as well. So it was a pretty diverse role. We come to the realisation that our box shops, for example, had the ability of being able to return more money. So a big part of having a metro store, particularly if it was located on a main road, is, is that you've got this retail space. And there were some stores within the brand that were underperforming and we worked with some professional retail planning people, concept people to come up with particular formats. So we had boxes, tape and bubble wrap all of a sudden becoming quite a good income line. We focused more so on making sure, you know, we're big on culture and staff culture, making sure that the people that were working for the likes of Storage King were actually enjoying it and they wanted to stay and Storage King did a really, really good job of that by offering conferences and so forth. And then at the end of 2011, it was just due for a change. I had my second child on the way and my wife was reminding me that life was more than Qantas Club. I took a local role for a, a lovely family in Melbourne that had nine self-storage facilities, but also a number of different assets, which included a tennis retail shop, both online and retail, stud farms, some commercial land holdings, a sawmill. So I took on a role with them under contract for many years or two and a half years. Very, very enjoyable role. I was able to bring a lot of my teachings from the former business across to there and build culture and kind of try to make it a place that everybody wanted to be involved in and, you know, and essentially get the valuation of that portfolio up, which I'm pleased to say we successfully did the team that I built and myself. Now, that was the same desk that I was sitting at when a guy called John Poulton, the former owner of Sentinel, presented himself to come and bum a coffee, I think it was, and said, if you know of anybody who'd be interested in having a look at my business, I'm here to sell it. I suggested that if he gave me a look at the financials, that I'd have a bit of a think about it. And the rest was history. I hope you're enjoying the show. We'll be right back after this short break. If you're struggling to figure out if that industrial investment that you're looking at is being sold at a fair cap rate or the rate per square meter is to market or how many new leases have actually been written in the last month and you just want to understand the supply and demand of a market, then check out CP Data. That's Commercial Property Data .com.au, the only platform that breaks down commercial property data sector by sector for you, the investor, to make informed decisions that are backed with solid data. That's www.commercialpropertydata.com.au. Check out our free membership today. So, mate, I've spoken to quite a few people in the self-storage industry and a lot of them actually mentioned that it's a, a very good strategy to build a portfolio 
that you intend to sell to one of the REITs, right? So I was just wondering mm. if you could kind of explain to us some of the size specifications that you would build to with that strategy in mind. Well, I suppose my disclaimer is is that I suppose what I perceive as being what an equity fund would be interested in, because as you can appreciate, equity funds and REITs and property trusts have different agendas, I suppose, and different yep. key performance indicators. But And I'll qualify that further by turning around and talk about metro sites rather than country sites, because they're, I suppose, the transactions that I've seen more so in recent times. The reality is, is that, you know, and again, from a more so evaluation perspective, valuers are out there adopting capitalization rates, which are based upon previous sales. There's a lot of chatter in the industry about capitalization rates right now at this point of time being around about 5% for a mature self-storage facility that ticks a number of key performance indicators. Main road exposure been trading for some time either is extremely well managed or has the potential of being managed better, well located, et cetera, et cetera. And for those that are listening to the podcast, in basic terms, net annual profit multiplied by 20 times is a capitalization rate of 5%. And you can Google as to the makeup of that if you're interested. But what these guys are doing, being the equity fund guys and girls are doing, is they're basically looking at an asset which they can purchase and add value to. And they look at matrix which are provided by the Self-Storage Association. So there's some operators out there that say their optimum size of a self-storage facility that they want to see is, let's say, 7,500 square metres of net lettable area. And so therefore, if the average size unit was 10 square metres, for example, you're talking about a 750-unit storage facility. Now, there's a few criteria that would need to be met in order for somebody to say, I want to buy something of that size, one of which is it's strong in its current occupancy at that point of time that it's being sold. But the other is, is trying to model to see whether there's an opportunity for a competitor opening up in the immediate area and or whether there's more development that's going to take place, which would see more people need self-storage within what we would deem as being a catchment area. And there's debate around how far do people travel to go to a self-storage facility and do they in fact drive past a competitor to come somewhere else. But in general terms, in a metro area, people are driving five kilometres to attend a storage facility, that's in fact if they drive there to make that decision, to make that inquiry. The Self-Storage Association is turning around and saying that in broad terms in metro areas, 10% of the population is using a self-storage unit at any given time. So if you have a look at that and you say, well, you know, if a property becomes available and it's located, for example, in the middle of the suburb, things that you need to be looking at is, number one, who currently trades in that area, who are going to be your competitors. Number two is, is the building going to be able to satisfy 
what potentially I will sell in the future to an equity fund. It's going to have 600 units, 700 units, 800 units. Is the building nice? Is it presentable? Big one is is saying how many people live within that radius and more so is it undersupplied or is it oversupplied? Is there an opportunity for me to open and organically have people basically rent units or is it going to be a slog because the area is already oversupplied? Now, if it's undersupplied, it'll allow you to be able to let up based upon the percentages that I was just talking about, but then it will also allow you to be able to increase your rates over time so that you've got this sellable entity to somebody else down the future, which will basically see them make a buck, essentially. I'd be turning around and saying that the new norm is, you know, people like that 750-unit storage facility or the ability for it to be able to grow to that size where previously 400 was basically where we would find some comfort. 400 kind of 15 years ago to where we are now, which is 750. And mostly that's driven by usage rates, which is a byproduct of exposure to the product just generally. But as I said, the Self-Storage Association, and I really push being a member, if you have a storage facility, but also if you're thinking about opening of storage facility because they have some great resources. I'm quoting a report which is called um, State of the Industry, which has already had a couple of revisions, but they're talking metro, 10% of the population will use self-storage and regional 5.9%. And they're numbers which are amazing. They blow my mind Mm. because I used to work off 2%. And in actual fact, if memory serves me right, we used to use 1% back in 2000. So as I mentioned before, there's more information that's available. We know more about the industry 20 years down the track than what we did previously. So, mate, like in 10 or 20 years, where do you think that usage rate will be? When I was growing up as a kid, my dad used to say to me, if you want to be an industry leader in Australia, jump on a plane and go over to America. Whatever's happening over there is likely to be happening over here in 10 years' time. Yeah. And a lot of people now in the storage industry claim to have done that, and that was really how they got the idea of building sheds in Orange or wherever it was that they first started. I look at the American market. It's quite a fragmented market. I mean, you've got operators over there that are running 3,000 storage facilities, and I may have undercooked that number as public storage, and they certainly have some financial interest in a lot of other brands as well. A lot of independent operators straight out there. So I'm not sure how credible their numbers are, but I think they'd be enjoying something around that 10% as well. So it could very well be that our play moving forward is almost everybody in another 10 years' time is going to know what our product is more so than today, you would think that they would have an impact in regards to what that overall usage rate would be. But I can see that usage rate as a percentage starting to slow rather than do anything else, to be fair. But, you know, still a dynamic industry. There's still a lot of opportunity, I believe, that is out there for an operator to go and find a marketplace which isn't currently satisfied by the population. I may have mentioned before, I'm in Western Sydney today, and the growth corridors that are taking place in this region 
allow for people to open up a storage facility today, build, let's say, a 200-unit storage facility or larger, that might be stage one of three or maybe stage one of four, and just wait for the population to basically just immerse them. And that's what we're starting to see more so. So more population that lives in Australia, the further they get pushed out into the outskirts, and that's where we see a lot of the new development taking place for self-storage. There comes a time, I would think, that the redeveloping, for example, a site within, let's say, a radius of maybe 10 or 15 kilometres of a capital city just no longer becomes viable. We see that a lot where people come and ask us to have a look at a set of plans and start to quote and chuck some numbers at what its uh, security costs are going to be for them only to come back and turn around and say, we've re-ran the numbers and by the time that we factor in construction as a whole and all of the other variables, we just can't get this to stack up, which is a shame. So I think if you've got an inner city holding, you'll see pricing of self-storage continue to go up if you're an operator. And I would say that a majority of new development would be on the fringes of population. And as you're well aware, that's now being enjoyed regionally as well. You've got places, for example, like Orange in New South Wales, it's got 14 operators of self-storage, you know, and I would have never thought that that would have been possible going back 10 years ago. That uh, location is still undersupplied. All those uh, self-storage facilities are a very high occupancy. Yeah, I know because cool. I've done some deep yeah. research into Orange. I know that for sure. Exactly. Exactly. But mate, you're spot on there. Like, there's just so much opportunity in this industry. And the company or the, the firm that you, you spoke about, Public Storage, I believe they are the largest holder of self-storage in the world. And that brings me to the American market. It's so interesting looking at the American market because if you go onto any kind of like property listing portal and you type in self-storage, there are so many self-storage facilities available for sale, right? But mm. if you come over to Australia... And it's just a lot harder to find them. They don't come up for sale that much. So you really have to do a lot more like calling of actual sites to try and see if they yeah. potentially want to sell. It's, it's just not the same. How far do you think Australia is like behind America in the actual self-storage industry and then becoming so, so we could actually just go on to say a commercial real estate.com and then actually be able to buy something or be able to find something relatively easily? I think the answer to your question is is that there's just a lot of off-market transactions happening because there's mm -hmm. a lot of people working the phones like yourself. What we're seeing more so is is that things just don't get to market. So the commercial real estate agents that are out there, the larger ones, talking about more metro sites, they're being approached. And in most cases, they're able to make three or four telephone calls and then basically just drum up some interest that way. Regionally, I think people are expressing interest to commercial real estate agents early and saying, if something comes up, please let me know, even if we need to basically pay a little bit of a premium, but we're genuinely interested in this space. So there's been many, many transactions that have taken place. Like as a supplier, we get notified retrospectively where people turn around and say, listen, we were the only yesterday, but we're no longer today. This is how and who you now to need to be dealing with. And those transactions are taking place without those businesses being listed at all. 
I think what the equity funds have done a really good job of saying, hey, listen, we're likely to be the last people sitting at the boardroom negotiating table anyway, and it's in our interest to make sure that we look after you. So let us save you a lot of the rigmarole around you having to list it and have copious competitors and arguably some tire kickers walk through your storage facility when we can just do the deal, do it off market do a transaction and have it tidied up in a number of months, make it unconditional very early because they do a lot of those transactions often. And that's where we're starting to see a lot of that take place. Let's face it, at the end of the day, it's a lucrative industry for those that have basically built and have now got a mature store. And as a byproduct of that, they don't sit around for that long. That's probably what drives the majority of the development that we've seen at the moment is is people not being able to access a mature facility because let's have a look at the returns that we all enjoy for the same reason as somebody wanting to buy an asset is probably the same reason why somebody shouldn't sell it and then they can explore some different options, e.g. they can introduce a commercial real estate agent to manage it for them or they, they can go down the path of having a look at some type of brand alliance, and that's what it really comes to. So in regards to sale aggregators and agents and so forth, they pop up occasionally, but there's really two people that specialise in self-storage real estate. You know, I've got websites that kind of a part of a self-storage association and promote the fact that they would do, but to be fair, they've got a handful of listings, so it's a pretty hard job for them and they've got to diversify and have a look at some um, other ways of being able to shift some commercial real estate. As I said, it's good for our business because people can't buy an existing cash flow. So they go and build and they they come to us for security. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think in future, there's going to be a lot more smaller stores around. Like as, as you said, there are so many markets across Australia that are just undersupplied. Yeah. I'm just in shock that there's so much opportunity out there in this industry. And there is a few barriers to entry in it as well. Like the lending is a bit more difficult. It's a specialty yeah. asset. So the banks won't lend, you know, more than, say, 70% on an asset or even 60% LVR. So a lot of these bigger um, companies, are they paying cash for these assets and then re-leveraging or are they just actually funding these with investor money from the get-go? Generally, they've got a pre-approved funding for the purposes of buying self-storage, whatever that may be. And it's probably a, a question better answered by the individual funds. But, you know, typically these equity funds do go and do capital raises from time to time internally or in the case of, for example, national, they, they go about it from time to time just to their their investor base. They also have lending facilities in place. So it's a combination of that as well. You know, it's the old scenario of your first one's probably the hardest one because by the time you move to your second and your third, you've got some runs on the board and yep. you've got some leveraging capacity. When you talk about a portfolio of, let's say, 200 stores, they're obviously in a better position than others. But what I would say is is that I've been blessed in by default of falling into an industry which has allowed me to not have to diversify. Made mm. a lot of good friends out of it. You know, it's been a great income stream for us. I think that when we eventually sell, we'll become an investor in self-storage ourselves in that asset class. At the moment, we're a supplier. 
at what point of time does it become saturated? I think that we've got a long time to go when we look at Australia and New Zealand as a whole before it's oversupplied. What it requires is lots of education and requires people to go and access the resources and or pay people to access the resources. So they're making good informed decisions about where should they be buying to create a self-storage facility. And there's a number of good valuers that are out there that will be able to do demand studies and really be able to assist in helping a decision maker as to where their next building or facility should be and where it needs to be. So for those of who don't mind their own due diligence, go your hardest and gather as much information as you can. It's inevitable that you're going to need to create a relationship with an industry valuer anyway. So you might as well have a chin wag to them early in the piece and get as much information as you possibly can. But as I said, the industry is friendly, you know, point in case yourself and hopefully myself in feeling comfortable enough to share the information that we have available to us. And again, self-storage associations are a real good reference and a point of call to various industry valuers that are available and, and people like you, Andrew. No worries, mate. So, I mean, last question. How do you feel about the taxi box type storage that's coming into the market now? Do you ever think that will disrupt the freehold type storage? In my opinion, is no. It's a different class, in my opinion. It suits people, in my opinion, that are looking for long-term storage in excess of a couple of years, where people that are looking for a shorter period of time would be looking for more the traditional storage. To be honest, we haven't had to really look at it as if it would be a disruptor because it hasn't. The guys that are doing Taxi Box and others are doing an extremely good job of marketing that product. I don't think it's comparable in most cases and hasn't disrupted the industry enough for uh, the industry of self-storage to be concerned as a whole. And I'll actually ask you one more question. If you were developing a facility right now, where would you build it in Australia? (laughs) I've got a passion (laughs) for regional Victoria and New South Wales, and there's been a very big push by state governments in particular to relocate, and COVID has been a big driver. I think that there's a very good opportunity of being able to go into country town, perhaps with a population of 30,000, 40,000 and discover that there's nobody trading as a self-storage operator there. And that's where I see there being huge advantage. Yep. Good answer. All right, mate. So where can the listeners go to find out more about you and your business? Two websites, storagesecurity.com.au and pti.storagesecurity.com.au. They said I'm no longer actively involved in the brand, but if you ring any of those numbers and if they were after some information, whatever that may be, and felt the need to tap me on the shoulder, I'll be as receptive as I can. Just ask for me by name. Perfect, mate. Today's guest has been Jason Keane. Cheers, buddy. Good on you, Andrew. Cheers, mate. Bye. That's the end of another great show. I'd like to thank my guest today, and Kevin McLeod for the music. Don't forget to check out our other network podcasts. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. 
I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.